0: is often known as the Beatitudes. Essentially, the Beatitudes means the blessings. And that's what you have at the commencement of each of those verses. But when you think of the Beatitudes, men and women, young people, you can break that down into a very plainest term. If you break the word up. Because really what it means is they are giving the believer... The attitudes they should be. The attitudes. We all know what an attitude is, of course. And the believer has has been given these attitudes that he should be. For in them Christ sets forth the nature. And the aspirations, if you like, of those in his kingdom. So we have and we're learning these character traits. Every believer ought to desire to have these attitudes or attributes, if you like. If these are absent, then you may wonder, is the root of the matter of salvation really there? And conversely, on the other hand, if you come across a believer who professes that they believe they have mastered these attributes, then you might question their honesty. When we note how the Savior was to commence this sermon, and you'll notice, of course, verse 2, he sat down and he opened his mouth. That's preaching. That's what we're about. The Savior taught by opening his mouth. And the preacher is to preach the word, open his mouth, to impart it, even to the congregation before him, as the Savior does here with the disciples. And I remember I said to you, the disciples in a very broad sense there, Not just the the twelve around him. But as he begins this message, you might be surprised in how he did so. Maybe there's every possibility that his congregation also were surprised. He doesn't say blessed are the rich. He doesn't say blessed are the powerful or even the religious. Indeed it seems to be the very opposite. For his opening thought is to speak of the poor. And yet we must remember that those who came to arrest the Savior, ere he went to the cross, were to confess, Never man spake like this man. The Savior was no ordinary preacher. And never a truer word was said of he who was the prince of preachers. But from speaking about the poor in spirit, he then proceeds to surprise again. For this next thought is even more startling. He says, blessed are they that mourn. That's certainly not the normal word that we would use alongside mourning. Happy are they at mourn. Is that not a contradiction in terms, you might ask? Well, that would be the conclusion of most. But therein lies the reason minimum why We ought to give attention to what the Savior is exactly teaching here. And not just to take it on the surface, not just to take it very glibly, as some people might do even these days. And so I want you to come with me into this uh, fourth verse. There's a definition of mourning here. Like the word for for poor, there are two words for mourn in the New Testament. One of them is used to speak of a mourning which is inward. A mourning that doesn't necessarily show itself in the outward fashion it's a grief that is in the heart but it's also hidden and maybe we have such a mourning at times or we have maybe seen it in others as well there's a putting on of a brave face and what one of us can't do that we can put on a brave face or people come into the congregation on Sunday maybe even the preacher himself and he can put on a smile but no one knows what's in the heart that's right And we can put on a brave face, but yet there's an aching in the heart. No one else sees it. But that's not the word that Matthew uses. The word mourning here gives the idea of a passionate grief. It is speaking of a mourning which cannot be hidden. It's that which cannot be contained. It can't be held in. It just bursts forth. And it's seen outwardly. And yet the strange thing is, the Saviour says, Happy are those that who mourn like this. That leads us, of course, to consider that not all mourning therefore has the blessing of God upon it. You want an example or two of that? Well, we could come bring you back to 1 Kings 21. And of course, you'll know right away it's the time of Elijah. 1 Kings 21 finds us speaking about. The king, the king Ahab. Verse 1: It came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Hard by the place simply means it was next to it. And Ahab said unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near unto my house. And I will give it thee for it a better vineyard than it. Or, if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it and money. And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. No, sir, you're not getting it. It's my father's inheritance. And Ahab came into the house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him for he had said I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers and he laid him down upon his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread there's a man mourning Naboth had refused to sell him his father's inheritance a king because of his lust not being satisfied in acquiring that vineyard was to take to his bed he made himself sick by his grieving But men and women, that wasn't a morning blessed of God. And of course we know the story. In come Jezebel, his wife. uh, And wondered why he he was of that spirit. And verse 6, verse 5. And so sad that I eat us no bread. And of course uh, he, he tells her the story. I don't like anything. Anything to do with Jezebel. She's a wicked creature. And Ahab's one of the worst kings that you'll read about in all of Israel. But there's a mourning that's not blessed of God. There's no blessedness produced by this kind of mourning. It's a sin which needs to be grieved over. He was seeking to take the inheritance off a mere citizen of the kingdom, his father's inheritance. You could then uh, maybe go back further, you could think of Cain. And Cain mourned because of the heaviness of the judgment of God for sin. Genesis chapter 4. He had sought, you know, to introduce a new way to God and to heaven without the blood. He had sought to introduce a new means of worship. And the anger was to take his brother's life. And it brought upon him the vengeance of God. But Genesis chapter 4 verse 13 says, And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. And we find him lamenting. Not over the sin of murder. Not over the very fact that he had sought to make a new way of worship unto God without the blood. But simply because that God judged his sin. He was mourning. Many are just like Cain, who have shed tears, not because of their sin, but because they've been found out. And they're now feeling the consequences or the penalty of that sin. And men and women, there's no blessing of that in that kind of mourning either. One who wants to hold on to their sin despite being judged. And he's crying to God, my punishment is greater, heavier than I can bear. You know, there'll be a mourning by lost souls in hell. How often do you read of the Saviour's description of such? There'll be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. There shall be no blessing in the mourning of an eternally lost soul. So when the Savior spoke these words, He wasn't referring to those types of mourning. Something far different. This is not a mourning on the physical. It's the same we brought out in the first beatitude. It's not on the physical. But men and women, I want you to see there is a definite mourning here. What then did the Savior mean by these words? To what sort of mourning was he bringing before the people? Well, <clears throat> we might say it is akin to uh, what the preacher brings out in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. And many would feel and find that hard to believe. God says it's better to go to the house of mourning. See the old nature would choose every time the house of feasting. The old nature chooses the house of feasting rather than the to good to awake, if I can put it like that. But God says the opposite. The feasting place has the effect of dulling the senses, but having to meet in the house where death has been, and where its effects are before you, you learn valuable lessons you learn the lesson of the brevity of life. Not one of us will be in this earth forever. The reality is of death one day, and that is what we face in the house of mourning. How many never think of it? Oh, that the unsaved in our heart might, tonight in our hearts, might realize the brevity of life. The people in our congregation might realize the brevity of life, the shortness of, of our time on this earth. And standing before death, the soul is brought to consider their eternal destiny. And this too is what the sinner needs to be brought to consider. As in the words of Job, Job chapter 14 and verse 10, I mind you, Job was looking death in the face, you might say. He says, But man dieth and wasteth away. Yea, man giveth up the ghost. And where is he? That's a powerful text. Some of you could go away and put a lot of bones to a bit, of, a bit like a fish to those bones, and make out a good message out of that one. All right, Daniel. <laughs> That's a good text. I preached that in many a grave. Man dieth and wasteth away. A man giveth up the ghost. And where is he? has never commanded on these days. The soul lives on after death. And for the child of God redeemed with precious blood it will be with Christ which is far better. But for the lost soul it will be forever in the caverns of the damned. And it's not good for them there. And if a man or woman in looking upon a corpse in the house of mourning asks themselves if that was me where would I be? And there's another valuable lesson, you see. There's a blessing in that. But the blessed and the definitive, definite, definite mourning of which the Saviour is speaking of here is a mourning over sin. What one of us couldn't place ourselves in the words of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And the words of verse 16, in fact I read it just not so long ago, preaching on that message on the dove. And they that escape of them shall escape and shall be in the mountains like doves of the valleys. All of them mourning, every one for his iniquity. Every one of us have cause to grieve over our sin and our shortcomings before God. I'm talking to the child of God tonight just for a moment, of course. We sin daily in word, thought and deed. And in a day where sin is played down and even by preachers and who make light of it, the unsaved need to be brought to that place whereby the convicting power of God's Spirit upon them, they are brought to see the heinousness of their sin. If we are grieved because we Fail the Lord, and we sin in word, thought, and deed every day. How much more should the unconverted not be grieved, and not mourn, because they are still outside of God's salvation? Brought to see where their sin, what their sin is, before a holy God, brought to that place where they might cry out like Paul did. In Romans chapter 7 and 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And I know in that context, he's speaking as a child of God and the battle ongoing against the old nature every day. We need to pray not merely for responses to the gospel. But in this our day, that sinners might be shaken by the power of God because of their sin. And you know, if we have that, then we will see through conversions and we will see the change that is evident in people's lives. That is the blessed morning here. That's the definite morning here of which the Lord is speaking about. And if I can bring it out to you in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, Paul puts it like this in the words of verse 10. He says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. So there's a different sorrow, you see, even in that verse. Motions are all different. Godly sorrow worketh repentance. A mourning over sin worketh repentance. And repentance is unto salvation. Not to be repented of. Not to be turned away. Not to be turned back on again. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. Different sorrow. But there should not only also be with us A mourning because of the effects of sin. Can we as believers sit unmoved and untouched as we see the countless numbers of people that cross our path and yet their lost souls? Are we unconcerned when we see what sin is doing in them? We can condemn sin and, and rightly so and we should but do we weep because of it? how it is destroying our land, how it's destroying our communities, our towns, our people, our children. With the many temptations and allurements of the present evil world, I tell you, if God, by His grace, gives us a heart that truly sorrows for sin, then it will be noted by the ungodly. One want said this, that until we mourn for the ungodly, the ungodly are not going to mourn for themselves. There's a lot of truth in that. We do well to pray the spirit of Jeremiah into our souls. Jeremiah 9 verse 1. You might have heard Jeremiah is often known as the weeping prophet. It's a verse like this. But maybe he's got that title. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slaying of the daughter of my people. He had a burden. He wept. He saw the effects of sin in his land. Or better still, of Christ. As you read of him coming on the mount, looking over Jerusalem, how he beheld Jerusalem and wept. They who had had the prophets. They who had heard the message. And yet they rejected him. And of course, being omniscient, he knew what they would do yet. As he would go to Calvary. Have we this definite mourning? This godly sorrow over sin and its effects? Are we mourning over the lost? And I tell you therein is a blessedness found of which the Savior is teaching this day for with such mourning we will come to Christ. We will pray for those who cannot pray for themselves and we'll do so with the assurance that God hears and God answers prayer and he's able to save unto the uttermost all that come to him you know, there are the promises for us to claim if we are mourning over lost souls. Ask and ye shall receive. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Or what about Acts chapter 2 and verse 39? Acts 2 in the words of verse 39 says this For the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now I know the context there again is Peter preaching before a Jewish audience, congregation. And they cried out, Men and men, what shall we do? They knew they were conscious of their sin. That's why he turns around. And he says, Repent and believe the gospel. And he says, For the promise is unto you and to your children, and to them that are far off, to them that are far off, the Gentile nations. But men and women, there are those tonight that are far off from us because they're outside of Christ. They're not found in the prayer meeting. They're not saved. And we need to pray that Lord God might be merciful unto them. Plead the promise for their salvation. Let me just show you finally here the delight of mourning. Tears cannot be put to better use. And weep over sin. Tears and mourningness regard as evidence of God's grace in our life. Weeping for sin is a sign of the new birth, just as a child weeps and cries as a babe. So as babes in Christ is a good sign that we've been born again of God. Those tears are counted as precious in the sight of God. If they weren't, He wouldn't have kept a bottle for them. As the psalmist speaks about in Psalm 56 and 8. And how blessed they were when Jacob prevailed with the angel. And you might be tempted to go back to the account in Genesis, but I'm not. I'm going to Hosea. Because Hosea brings this detail out. Chapter 12, verse 4. Yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel and there he spake with us. And speaking of Jacob. He prevailed over the angel. But it tells us he wept. I will not let thee go until thou dost bless me. And not only Jacob, but the psalmist knew all about the tears as well. Psalm 42 and verse 3 says, My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? The melted heart is evidence of God's presence with us. He says in Psalm 51 that a broken and a contrite spirit he will not despise. And you'll notice for our text that mourning goes before our comfort. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. You just think of this, man and woman. The devil, he sets the best forward first. You understand what I mean? You think of the wine. He brings out the wine and all the and there's all the laughter and all the singing. Then comes the bite like a serpent. Then comes the man lying in the street outside the pub. But you don't see those things. There's the good time and then there's the sorrow. But God does it the opposite way round. Because with God, He prescribes the better pill first. There's the mourning. The mourning over sin. And then comes the blessing and repentance of it. And the promise, and the best at the end. They shall be comforted. The order is the same in Psalm 126 and verse 5. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. The same is the case when we compare earth to the believers. Home in heaven, on earth we have the bitter tears and the sorrow. Up there we shall put off all sorrow and all mourning. Married supper of the Lamb shall make amends for the valley of tears down here. You see, the best is yet to come. If you turn to John chapter 16, you'll note the Savior was to speak of it. John chapter 16 verse 20. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Verse 22, And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. See the order? Exactly the opposite of the world. The promise is for now. And when we mourn over sin, we know something special of God. You might say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, Paul, you remember in Philippians chapter 3, he spoke of uh, the, being conformed unto the fellowship of his sufferings. And there's a closeness as we mourn over sin to the man of sorrows who is was acquainted with grief. And you know the promise is for heaven as well. And with this, I'll just close tonight. Revelation 21, verse 4. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. When those former things are passed away, then we shall know the full impact of this verse. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. May the Lord help us to not only lean on His promises, but also to get the real truth of what He's saying there into our heart. And to thank God as grace reached down from that day in our life's experience and caused us to mourn over our sin. We were brought to Christ by the working of His Spirit. Let's pray for those that are still not in that place. They're still in their sin. May the Lord bless His Word of each of our hearts tonight.